Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to BespokeCast. We took a little bit of a summer sabbatical and we are once again coming to you with a really interesting uh, researcher from um, the West Coast who takes a very different approach to markets from how Bespoke tends to look at things. So we're really excited to talk to her today. Michelle Leader uh, runs Footnoted and is famous for identifying the just ridiculous things companies try and slide past investors on Friday nights in her Friday night dump um, alerts that she sends out, uh, scanning Edgar, scanning SEC filings, and keeping an eye out for things that might otherwise be missed and can have really material impacts on businesses and investments. So, Michelle, we're thrilled to have you here today. Thanks so much for joining us. It's going to be really interesting to talk to you about your career and and what you do at Footnoted. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We always start with a sort of brief biography of uh, the folks we talk to. So where did you go to undergrad? I went to Brandeis. Okay. In Waltham, Massachusetts. Awesome. Very, very different from your current environment. A little colder up there. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm actually a native New Yorker. I've only been out in LA. Uh, it'll be five years this February. So not a native LA person. You can probably hear some of that in my accent. I definitely um, can. Yes, I am a Brooklyn born and bred. So you, you, know. you and Cherry Ellen. Yeah. <laughs> so you went to school at Brandeis. What did you study at Brandeis? Economics. Economic. That's interesting. So I, I wouldn't have necessarily assumed that economics was was what you would have focused on, given your sort of more qualitative work a lot of the time with um, keeping an eye on what companies are saying, as opposed to sort of, I don't know, um, macroeconomics or um, macro markets, that sort of thing. Um, did you do anything else other than economics or was it just a straight economics major and, and that was your degree? Uh, straight economics major. I wasn't really reading SEC filings then, but I think I've always been, you know, sort of interested. My background, basically, the first 10 years of my career, you know, after Brandeis was working for different daily newspapers as a business journalist. So I kind of moved around the country a little bit. I was in Florida for a couple of years. Then I was at the um, at two different papers in Florida, one of which um, shut down within the past year. That would be the Tampa Tribune. Um so moved around a little bit, was in Florida for a couple of years, uh, then was in Connecticut. Um, and then my last journalism gig was at the Poughkeepsie Journal. I was the business editor there um, in sort of not quite upstate New York to upstaters, but certainly upstate New York to anyone who's in New York City. And um, was there for a couple of years. And I like to say that I was smart enough to figure out where newspapers are going. And I decided to get out when the going was still good. Um, but, uh, it wasn't quite that, uh, I wasn't quite that smart. I did leave newspapers then, and I'm glad that I did. Um, and, um, you know, because I think that otherwise now I would just be like sort of a mid-career journalist trying to hold on between the next layoff. Um, and that's not a fun opportunity. Totally. I talked with a journalist this week who was saying, you know, he, he works for a very large operation and I, I don't want to out him. Um, but he was saying, you know, we're, this is, this, this is really hard because the content demand has gone up. It's not, it's not that content demand is crashing. What's crashing is the ability to pay for it. So you see people, you know, some of the journalists I know work so hard. It is, mind-boggling you know like how much effort is getting put into what they're putting out and there's just so few jobs in the industry and they're you know the you know pay is tough and there's all this different stuff going on so so what you launched footnoted in 2003 i did yeah i mean just to follow up on the journalism thing i mean i know obviously i'm out in la right now and so i know some reporters at the la times and they've just been through you know, literally hell and back. And, you know, some of those people have been producing some really, really good journalism. And yet still, like, you know, usually in most lines of work, you do something good, you're rewarded for it. 
in some fashion, whether it's monetarily or praise, you know, outside recognition. And here it just seems like both are working against him. You know, even if you're doing a good piece of work, you could like find yourself, you know, on the layoff list the next day. And that's really sad. I mean, I know a lot of mid-career journalists, people who I started with, and uh, it's just really, really tough times. Um, so yes, I started the site in 2003. I wrote a book that came out in um, uh, the fall of 2003 called Financial Fine Print, Uncovering a Company's True Value. And from there, what I decided to do, you know, if you think back to 2003, which seems like forever ago, um, it was the early days of blogging. And because I came from a daily journalism background, and this is where we get back into the journalism thing, you know, I wanted to, if you've ever written a book or you know someone who's written a book, you know, there's a very long lag time between the time that you turn your book into the publisher and the time that it actually sees the light of day. Um, in my case, I think it was about nine months, and that's actually a pretty short cycle. A lot of times it can be, you know, um, uh, much longer. It can be a year, longer than a year. And so what I felt like was this was an opportunity, you know, what I wanted to do was kind of continue the conversation, some of the things that I had written about in my book, and continue the conversation online. And so it was the early days of blogging, and, um, you know, I happened to um, connect with uh, a young developer, and he just said, you know, I tried to ex I explained to him exactly what I was looking to do. And he was like, well, there's this new product called Blogger out there that can really, you know, solve what you need to do. And so I started on Blogger and, um, you know, a couple of years later I switched to, um, uh, you know, another thing, but originally it was just like, you know, footnoted was a, you know, started as a blog on Blogger. The original intention was just to get the message about the book and keep the content of the book sort of fresh in, in, in the, yeah, in front of the news yeah. while you were waiting for that turnaround time. My mom's an author as well. And some of the struggles she's gone through with, you know, good struggle, um, not, not struggle as in like, oh, you know, editors are awful, but it just takes a lot of time to, to really craft a final product that that's numbering in the tens of thousands of words. And um, I, I, she's definitely had some of that same struggle. So I can totally understand that. We're, we're the same approach, right? Like we always want to be on top of things. Yeah. And having blog, Twitter, um, disseminating stuff via email with PDFs, it's so much faster than the traditional uh, media approach. And that is one of the reasons that the news industry is under so much pressure, I guess. You started this blog and it got enough reception that you were eventually able to turn it into a business is that was that just sort of a natural evolution or was it more you know um okay well the book came out and i really don't like what i'm doing and so i got to find something else to do i would say in the beginning you know it was more you know um you know i started the site as a way to you know draw attention to the book obviously i think even for the first year or maybe you know i'd have to go back and look at like archives.org but I think maybe even the first year or two, um, you know, it was basically the split, the first page that you got to on Footnoted was information about the book as opposed to fresh content. Like the blog was a like a, a tab off of the main site. And then I think it was about a year or so. And then people were like, hey, you know, forget the book thing, you know, just continue doing the blog because the blog started picking up steam. And again, you know, early days of the web, people weren't used to clicking on a lot of little tabs. You know, you wanted to see the content that you wanted to see. Um, you know, quickly. So, you know, for the first couple of years, I, you know, was just doing it as a way to get word out about the book. I was doing a fair amount of speaking, um, talking to other journalism groups, talking to other, you know, business groups. So it was really, you know, a vehicle for me, I guess, um, you know, like a traditional author, you know, gets a site out there, they get invited to speaking, you know, conferences, what have you. And that's really how it was for the first couple of years. And then in 2008, and I like to joke around about this. It was the fall of 2008. I decided to launch a subscription-based product. Now, if you think back to the fall of 2008, it was not the most ideal time to be starting a subscription-based product because the markets were basically like in free fall. Although, um, you know, given what I write about and sort of some of the disclosures um, and, and you know, reading those carefully, I would say that, um, you know, in some ways it was a good um, time to begin um, really starting a subscription-based product. Yeah, I wasn't around with Bespoke when um, they first launched back in 2007. Justin and Paul have been have been at this a lot longer than I have. Um, but they yeah. actually found a similar thing. You know, when, when markets are 
at their most volatile and at their most scary is when people sort of are most willing to uh, pay up or you know read a lot to get the best handle on what's going on. So it's kind of counterintuitive that um, that would be the case, I think. But for small, affordable, independent research shops, it can actually be a big boon um, to, to be in a relatively volatile market. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, I started that. I did that for a couple of years. I had a subscription-based product. And then in um, uh, early 2010, Morningstar um, acquired the site. And so uh, I went to work for Morningstar for the next couple of years. And that was a different, you know, phase of the site. And that was interesting. And um, obviously, you know, big team at Morningstar as opposed to, you know, I work from home. So it was quite different in that sense. There was an office that was, you know, all that stuff um, and, um, you know, worked for Morningstar for the next two and a half years. And then ultimately we decided that it made better sense for us to part ways. And um, so I bought it back from Morningstar and then I spent about six months reworking the site and then relaunched it in the spring of 2013 again. Um, so bought the site back from Morningstar in September of 2012 and then really relaunched it in like March of 2013, which is right around the time that I moved out to LA. So relaunching a business and, and moving cross country um, while having a young child is not something that I would recommend, but uh, I survived it. So what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> so I, we, it would be great to just take a step back. And for, for, for folks, I think we've sort of operated on the premise that um, so far that people know what footnoted is just to be absolutely clear. So what people know what it is sure. uh, footnoted is famous for digging into SEC filings that companies make uh, mandatory filings that um, and coming up with with sort of the details that other people tend to miss. So can you talk a little bit about what it is that allows you to do that, um, how the SEC filing system works. I mean, we don't need to go deeply into the weeds, but giving people that may not be familiar with some of the single stock stuff um, a, a, a little bit more background on that. Yeah. So basically every publicly traded company is required, uh, well, I shouldn't say every single, um, the majority of publicly traded companies that most people care about, um, uh, you know, other than these very, very, very teeny small caps, and by teeny small caps, I mean, you know, really small, um, you know, like, yeah, penny stocks and the requirements are different there. Um, but, you know, like typical company, Facebook, Google, Apple, you know, you name it, um, you know, um, required to file documents with the Federal um, Securities and Exchange Commission. That is basically the price of admission to being a public, to accessing public markets, to being a publicly traded company. So a lot of this is spelled out in the 19, uh, believe it or not, it's spelled out in, you know, what the, what created the SEC. So it dates back to 1933 and 1934. It's the 1933 and 1934 acts. And it came after the market crash in 1929 because there was no, there wasn't good information available. And so, um, you know, if you step back and you think about that, what's really interesting to me, uh, interesting is that a lot of what we're dealing with, a lot of the framework of what we're dealing with is for things that happened 80 plus years ago, um, before the internet, before Twitter, before, you know, a lot of stuff that we just kind of like take for granted before, certainly before email, before, you know, all of this. Um, so the frame, the basic framework dates back then, obviously they've kind of, you know, added some scaffolding along the way. But, you know, the rules where companies are required to file an annual report, you know, called a 10K, that rule dates back to, you know, um, uh, you know, the 30s, you know, 1933, 1934, um, the 10Q, which is the quarterly report, and also, um, uh, you know, a proxy statement and 8Ks. Um, and so, um, you know, there's other filings, of course, there's forms three, four, and five, which are, you know, have to do with insider trading. We actually do not pay as close attention to that, but, um, you know, those are also requirements there. And, um, what we're looking at is we're looking at, you know, the things that companies vary now a 10 K just to be clear, you know, a 10 K is different than the annual report that maybe, you know, you might be familiar with often when I do a presentation and this is kind of funny. I'll do a presentation and one of my most prized possessions is an annual report from Marvel 
comics um, back, you know, probably like 15 years ago. Of course, Marvel is now owned by Disney, so they're not doing independent filings. But if you look at it, like their their annual report looked like a comic book. They had like the Hulk climbing revenues, and you know it was really. Um, I have a page of it somewhere. I, I I can probably share it with you. It's it's really you know quite an interesting prop prop there, because it shows like you know sort of superheroes climbing revenue tables and you know earnings per share, and that I think is you know sort of you know all well and good, but that's like, you know, basically PR and, you know, the 10 K um, as well as the 10 Qs are not the PR um, you know, it's, it's really um, you know, like the annual report that, you know, I think a lot of investors tend to sort of think about when they think about it, although, you know, obviously it's changed over the years. It was sort of like the CEO shaking hands with the custodian to show what a, you know, a regular guy he was um, and what a wonderful company this was. And it was put out by marketing and public relations folks. Um, the 10 K of course has touches of public relations people in there, but it is a legal document and, you know, um, it, it, it's, you know, it can be quite boring and it can have a lot of, you know, very small type in there. Um, and, uh, but I still think that it's really, you know, worth reading. Yeah. I, I think for, for certainly all of the, uh, single name investors that really sort of grope the way businesses work, you know, the, the fundamental, what, what moves a business. There is nothing more classic than, you know, someone cracking open a 10 K and just sort of working through it to understand the business. It, it's incredibly helpful. And if, if you've never read a 10 K or even a 10 Q, I mean, the 10 Ks are where that are, are, are the really interesting ones, but it really does help you sort of get into management's head in terms of like how they think about the business. Um, much more so than um, a conference call or, um, you know, an interview or a presentation at a conference because it's sort of got this standardized format because it is a legal document. It's a required mandatory filing. And they all have very similar sorts of, of formats. So one of the features of these of these documents is, as you guys have so you know, hammered over the years are the parts that people don't read, which is the stuff at the bottom of the page, right? The footnotes. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I, I should add that this is a thing that um, applies in other um, areas as well. So yesterday, for instance, um, we're recording this on September 27th. Uh, yesterday, Chair Yellen gave a speech about inflation and monetary policy. And the most interesting stuff in the speech, so for instance, a, a really, you know, simplistic but helpful model for thinking about inflation, um, a uh, approach to identifying why why inflation is low across states relative to productivity, you know, some other stuff as well. That was all in the footnotes. That wasn't in the core of the speech. She didn't actually stand up on stage and talk about the specifics of it, but it was sitting there in the footnotes if you wanted to go read. And a lot of this stuff tends to pass people by. So it's not something that just applies in 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 10Ks, but sort of looking looking at the details is something that a lot of people tend to miss. So anyhow, back to footnoted. Um, I mean, look at the, you know, it's, it's interesting, true. It's, it's a, you know, like uh, the Equilar situation, right? They were saying that if you signed up, you know, after this massive data breach, and then they were trying to get you to sign up for this product that, you know, in some cases they were charging you for, and then- Sorry, this is, this is Equifax, Equifax, right? I'm sorry, yeah. No, it's okay. I just wanted to make Equifax, sure we we're on the yeah. same page. So, um, uh, yeah, apologies to Equilar because Equilar is a different company. <laughs> but uh, Equifax, and, you know, they were asking you to sign up for this product. And, um, you know, then, you know, as some journalists wound up reporting, buried in the fine print was that you couldn't sue, that you had to go to arbitration, even if they, you know, messed everything up and, you know, like were basically uh, making your social security number and driver's license and birth date available. And that was buried in the fine print, too. So, I mean, countless situations, you know, I mean, I know when I sign, you know, for a mortgage, it's like, you know, you got to read the fine print. The, you know, the people are like, you know, they do this over and over again, the people who are at the closing table. But I'm like, no, I'm reading this sucker. You're going to have to sit there and wait. <laughs> As it relates to companies, then, can you walk us through some of the stuff you're you're looking for when you first see a release and it may, maybe not necessarily 10k but you know anything that sort of crosses your radar 
um, you're not looking for the fine print that you would look for in a mortgage, obviously, because it's, it's, not, a, it's sure. not a contract, it's a disclosure. So what are some of the first things you look for in, in looking at, at one of these releases? I mean, I think, you know, I'm looking at a couple of different things. I'm looking, you know, if, if you want to just focus on the 10Q for, I mean, I'm sorry, the 10K, for example, I like to look at um, the footnotes, as you might expect, judging by the name of the site, footnoted. So we're looking at the footnotes and in, to the filing. These are the numbers that kind of, these are the disclosures, the words, if you will, that tell you why the numbers are what the numbers are. I think like, you know, one of the problems in our current, you know, sort of market environment, and, you know, it's really been a problem for a long time, is everyone's so focused on the number. What, did they make the number? Did they, you know, beat earnings? Did they not beat earnings? You know, what's that penny difference going to make? But the problem is, and this is actually something that my mentor, um, you know, Ted O'Glove, Thornton O'Glove, um, he wrote the Quality of Earnings Report, and it's an, you know, awesome book that you ought to have. If you haven't, um, you know, if you really want to get into this, I mean, he is really, you know, the book is now probably like 30 years old, but it really is a top book on understanding how companies, you know, are doing this. And, um, you know, what he once said to me was that you can have, assume you have two different, you know, two different companies that are exactly identical. Of course, this is a hypothetical situation because there are no two, you know, uh, like, you know, there are no, um, you know, uh, exact twins, right? Identical twins of companies. But assuming that you had two of the same exact companies, one company can be very aggressive in their account accounting and report, let's say, 25 cents a share in earnings. And the other company can be more conservative in their you know, reporting and their accounting, and they can report 10 cents a share in earnings. And so are the two companies you know, the same or are they different? Um, and that was you know, a really eye-opening thing that he taught me about really going in and like, you know, I will say that time and time again, you can see the companies that are aggressive um, and you can see the companies that are not so aggressive. Obviously this takes some time to learn and build up some, you know, knowledge of, I mean, I think that's also one of the problems is, you know, people often want to say like, well, what stock should I buy? And, you know, that's not what my site is about. It will not tell you buy this, sell it here, you know, buy it at this price, sell it here. There's other people, plenty of other people online that will tell you that information. Um, but really, I'm saying this is, you know, we're 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 going fishing and we're doing some homework, um, and you know, trying to find you know things that are you know potentially important to the stock and your understanding. So that's an important distinction. You guys are not running models. DCFs, whatever, to come up with a value on the stock and using yeah. sort of your your edge in the footnotes to better inform that model. You're just saying, okay, regardless of what the numbers are, the numbers could be good, bad, whatever, it doesn't matter. What is the underlying assumption going into the number? Does that number stand up to a qualitative analysis that we're going to do based on the specific disclosures that are being made. And often to, to that um, description you just gave, that comes down to decisions around accounting and how aggressive versus conservative the accounting is. Is that is that a fair way to describe it? Yes. For someone that isn't an accountant, I'm not an accountant and you know I've taken accounting classes. Nor am I. <laughs> I've taken some accounting classes, but but when when i think of an aggressive accounting well that sounds kind of like a like like a contradiction in terms like aren't the numbers just the numbers what's an example of a of an aggressive accounting technique versus something that's more conservative well you know we're i'm actually not an accountant either and um you know so i don't get heavy duty into accounting i think there again there are other services we're looking at the language and this is, you know, um, it's not just so it's not just the accounting, it's the lawyering that's involved that's behind it. Um, and, uh, you know, how aggressive the lawyers are um, in terms of, you know, what they're going to disclose. So you see companies, I mean, there was an example, you know, a couple of years ago, um, I think it was a great example, actually. So I often talk about this, even though it's, you know, a couple of years old now, but there was a company called GT Advanced Technology. And in their 10Q that they filed in August of 2014, they had a new disclosure for the first time about how they were so heavily dependent on Apple. And, you know, they were basically, you know, putting all of their chips in Apple, you know, uh, saying yes to their product. And, you know, there was some very stark language in there that, you know, if things didn't work out, 
um, you know, they were going to be, you know, in trouble. Now, in their conference calls and everything else, they were, you know, this is why I think it's important to go to the filing, because in their conference call, they were like, we have this great thing. It's going to be with Apple. It's going to be like mana from heaven. You know, riches are going to fall from the sky. You know, it was all this talk. And, you know, so it was like, and that's really where I think that, you know, footnoted really excels is sort of like looking at the, um, you know, the difference between what the company is saying publicly and what it's disclosing publicly. Um, and they're often, you know, there often can be a, a pretty stark difference. So with this example of GT Advanced Technologies, they were much more cautious in their filings than they were in their press releases and in their, you know, media appearances. And as it turns out, two months, you know, Apple decided, you know, to go a different way and GT Advanced Technologies filed for bankruptcy. So, you know, in August, when it filed its 10Q, it, had, it was trading at just under $17 a share. Two months later, it was bankrupt. Um, you know, that's an example of something that we found in the filings that I think that, you know, is worth paying attention to, that had you just been, uh, you know, focusing on what the company was saying instead of what it was actually disclosing, you would have, you know, been taken for a ride. There's sort of an interesting um, uh, philosophical thing here where modern markets are so trusting of data, whether it is an economic release, whether it is a um, you know, disclosure from a company, whatever. Um, and, and not just modern markets, but I think society in general, we've sort of gotten to the point where, where data is trusted as prima facie correct. And, you know, that's the absolute truth in the world or, or however you, you know, if you want to get really out into, into a philosophical realm, when in reality, it's, it's, it's actually much more nuanced than that. And, you know, numbers can lie essentially, right? Maybe not intentionally, maybe not, um, in some sort of fraudulent way, but, but, into the same effect, right? Um, it's an interesting sort of pushback against the uh, modern ethos around data. For sure. Looking again at specifics, do you tend to focus more on a, a given type of report? So 10Ks are obviously very long, so they have lots of chances to have sort of, you know, disclosures or observations that are um, noteworthy, um, or is it the sort of surprise filing that, you know, they try to slide under the line that, that you tend to pay more attention to? I think, you know, I mean, I spend a lot of time looking at, you know, Friday night filings for one, um, because, you know, companies, you know, one of the things that's very interesting to me is that the markets close at 4 PM Eastern time on a Friday and the SEC remains open for another hour and a half, um, 90 minutes. And so companies will, you know, often file, um, you know, the most controversial things late on a Friday afternoon. You know, you don't need a lot of examples. I mean, if you just go back to this past Friday, um, you know, last Friday with Facebook, they filed something that talked about, you know, how they were changing, you know, um, their ownership, you know, the, they were getting rid of um, uh, some of their ownership ship issues and that Zuckerberg was going to sell 35 million to 75 million shares of his holdings. Now, there was no press release about that. It's just very interesting. But if you go to the actual filing, you know, it was filed like late on a Friday afternoon. Um, why is that? Um, that's the type of thing that I think is, you know, those are, you know, companies will time it. I mean, I've even seen companies, the SEC is actually open until 530. They actually go down to the 10th of a second. So they're open until 530 and 59 seconds, uh, 59 tenths of a second. So five, um, you know, 5.30 and 50, you know, at, at, five th at 5.31, they close the window. Um, I hope that's clear in me explaining this. But- um, Well, just um, we should just say all of this is filed electronically. So, you know, you can hit the button at the last second as it were, or time it so that it goes out right at the wire. It's not like you're mailing in or making a phone call or standing in an office somewhere. It's all automatic with, exactly. the, with the way the filing system works. Yes. And so at, you know, like uh, I've seen companies file things at like 5:30 and like 43 seconds or 5:30 and 57 tenths of a second, you know? So it's very interesting to me how companies will, you know, use this and then they hope that, um, nobody's paying attention because, you know, especially, you know, uh, you know, by the end of a long week at 530, 
you don't really want to be looking at, you know, Edgar filings if you're, you know, a professional or even if, you know, if this is like you're living um, and you're looking at, you know, numbers and filings all, you know, all week, you're tired at 530 on a Friday night. It's pub time. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting that you bring up that Facebook example, though, because the dual th that was the decision not to pursue a dual share class, right? Yes. That, mm -hmm. Essentially. So Zuckerberg had some sales as well. Traditionally, a large owner operator of a company selling out of the stock wouldn't be viewed as good news. So that's kind of understandable why they might want to have that on a, on a Friday night filing. But the dual share class structure might actually be considered good news mm. um, from a certain perspective. I know a lot of investors are very wary of these sort of dual share class structures because they remove so much pressure on management to conform to expectations of large investors. Um, do you see that a lot where companies will also sort of slide good news in, in times when, you know, you wouldn't expect them to sort of um, put it in and be out of the way with it? Yeah, I mean, I definitely see companies, um, you know, doing, you know, uh, good news, bad news, or they'll, you know, they will slide things in. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I think of other examples, you know, um, just over the years. I mean, it's just amazing to me. I mean, I think one of my favorite examples, and this is, again, going back quite a long time, was Chesapeake Energy. And this was actually in a proxy filing, but, you know, they disclosed that they had bought a map collection from Aubrey McClendon. He's since, of course, you know, died, but he was the CEO of, of Chesapeake for quite a number of years. And they had bought an antique map collection from him for like over $12 million dollars. And that was like buried in there. And I'm thinking like, huh, why are they spending $12 million on this antique map collection? And, you know, it was very interesting to read that. And like, you know, there was, you know, this long discussion about, well, maybe not that long, but it was a discussion about, well, this reflects our company's history and blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, we came up with a $12 million price after talking, getting an evaluation and appraisal from the guy who purchased the collection for McClendon. So it was just like, you know, and you're thinking like some lawyer in some office is actually writing this BS and like, I hope they're getting paid well for it. <laughs> yeah. And there's like no way to know what the actual map collection is worth. Yeah, of course. I mean, what's a map collection? I mean, I have stuff in my own house. It's like very valuable to me. But, you know, if someone was to actually put a price tag on it, who the heck knows? Are there companies that sort of have an excellence around transparency and disclosure that you follow regularly where you never really have to worry about them trying to pull one over based on these filings or based on how they're talking about the numbers that they, they disclose? Well, that's a hard question because I think like you tend to pay attention to the ones that, you know, it's almost like the cop saying, are there people who aren't speeding? You know, you're sitting on the road and are there people who aren't speeding and are driving okay? He's not paying attention to that, right? Right. He's yeah, totally. Attention. He's paying attention to the jerks. So in some ways, like, you know, I like to think of it as like I'm kind of like a cop, right? I mean, it's 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 you know, um, you know, in some ways, um, you know, so I don't really know, you know, I I used to actually do um early days I used to do something called Gold Star Fridays and I would like kind of hand out a gold star and people were like, you know, the readers were kind of like, oh, that's all nice and everything like that. But, you know, you're not a second grade teacher. So, <laughs> you know, you know, you don't really need to hand you shouldn't need to hand out a gold star for companies doing the right thing. Um, and so we stopped doing it. Um, but, you know, yeah, early on, there were, you know, gold stars that, you know, we would hand out when a company was particularly clear in its disclosure or, you know, it just kind of like, you know, get, went into detail. You know, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes it would be things like, you know, corporate jets, right? Like, so some companies are very forthcoming on what they're spending and other companies are not, Um you know, and that's the type of thing, you know, that's again in the proxy statement, which, you know, I think that if you're going to start, like if you're really, you know, dipping your toe into the water, the 10K, of course, is great. But if you really want a, a more interesting document, I would probably start with the proxy statement because the proxy statement, you know, gives you information on how much people are getting paid. And that can be, you know, quite interesting. It's, it's sort of like, you know, that last taboo, right? Nobody ever wants to be the jerk at the party that says, oh, so you work at a law firm. So do you make a lot of money? 
You know, how much do you get paid? Nobody really asks that question. You can ask, you know, you can ask people like all sorts of very personal questions these days, but you do not tend to ask people how much they get paid, right? I mean, you haven't asked me that question during this, you know, conversation. I'm not asking you that question. Most people, you don't ask your friends that question. That's sort of something that, you know, is really, you know, sort of one of those last taboos. And so I think that, like, you know, the proxy statement gives that kind of information. It also gives information on the perks. And that stuff can be, like, sort of the more, you know, um, salacious information. But I think the proxy is also really important because it tells you how much the directors are getting paid. And, you know, this is something that I used to talk about during my presentations. You know, if you being a director, it's certainly harder than it used to be. Um, but it's still, in the end, a part time job. Now, most of us, you know, do not have part time jobs that pay us upwards of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and, you know, plus stock options and so on. And so, you know, you start to question like. If you have a part-time job that pays you, and I've seen, you know, $500,000 a year, you know, are you more, are you likely to rock the boat and say, hey, I don't agree with this, or I don't agree with that, or I think you're doing this wrong? Um, or are you just going to say, hey, I've got a part-time job that pays me $500,000 a year. That seems like a pretty sweet gig. So I'm going to go along. Yeah. Corporate um, governance in general is a really interesting subject in a, in a world where you know, inequality is something that, that gets a lot of attention in the media these days. And, and, you know, we have sort of new efforts at different forms of corporate governance, especially motivated out of tech and from the West Coast. Um, the the sort of board of uh, directors for Theranos comes to mind, right, which was filled with very widely respected sort of august and, you know, very well-known people who have had strong careers in other subjects. And yet you have what amounts to, you know, a complete misrepresentation and on a lot of aspects of the business, you know, sort of proceeding under their nose, you know, but they get to be on the board of the Silicon Valley company and so on and so forth. So it, it's like, you know, these people who are supposed to be looking after interests other than those of management really aren't doing the job they're supposed to. Now, that's outside the public sphere. Obviously, that was not a publicly traded company, but it still, I feel like, is, is reasonably representative of some of the challenges and frustrations people have around corporate governance in the sort of age we live in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's just, you know, it's hard. Obviously, you know, I think directors go in there thinking they're going to do a good job. Um, and most of these people do have, you know, some sort of, you know, background, um, you know, either they're, you know, accomplished in some other fashion, they're a CEO of some other company or a founder or what have you. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, everyone is, you know, I think I've also seen companies where, you know, some guy is, and I'm just using guy here, it could be a woman, um, but, you know, someone is, um, you know, the CEO of a, a major, you know, let's say even a, you know, an, uh, you know, uh, a Russell 3000 company, um, just to give a broader path and broader value there. And yet they're still on two or three other boards. Now, how are you running a big company as a CEO and still sitting on two or three other boards, publicly traded companies? I mean, it's just, you know, there's only so many hours in the day so much attention span and it just, you know, calls into question that whole thing. Totally. And then you also have, I mean, there's split CEOs now, which we thought we'd never see, of course. Um, Jack Dorsey coming to mind there, CEO of Twitter, and uh, he's also at uh, was it Square. Um, yeah. Square, So yeah. Uh, that's really interesting. Um, the it, it, It's also interesting to me that, that you got pushback from people you know, saying, well, we don't really care about the folks that are doing this well, or we don't really care about the companies that are doing this in, in a way that's really constructive. Um, you know, we we want the, the good stuff. We want the, you know, I'm sort of being melodramatic here, but the tabloid stuff, you know, whatever, the, the bad news. Um, it, that could also just be a reflection of my readers, right? I mean, like people, you know, were coming to the site because, you know, it does te tend to have a, you know, we're finding, you know, the stuff that's buried in the filings is tends to be negative stuff. So you have a contrarian bias to begin with. And so, you know, maybe, you know, the majority of the readers who were coming to the site, they felt that, you know, um, and who were contacting me, maybe they felt there were other places for that kind of thing, you know, like, a, like corporate governance weekly or something like that, or 
you know. But I do think it also speaks to a certain bias among investors. And, and I, I've noticed this really a lot post-crisis in how people think about macroeconomics and sort of the macro side of things, which is where more my sandbox. But I, I do think it applies in, on single stock investing as well. Um, there is a bias to look for negative information. Like, like that is something that's really common. So do you ever worry? I mean, do, do you ever worry about um, maybe facilitating uh, people's irrational fear or rational negativity? Or do you just sort of take the approach, oh, well, you know, like it is what it is. I'm just going to provide the information I provide and, and that's how it's going to be. Yeah, I would say more the latter. I think that um, I don't get into the psychology of it. I think that, you know, most people, um, you know, who are reading the site, you know, primarily the site is designed for in institutional investors. Um, and so the majority of the people who are reading that site are, you know, sophisticated folks who are, um, you know, using this as one piece of the um, the story that they're building, you know. So, you know, and I have some institutions who are primarily long only who are using the site as a insurance policy per se. They want to know what the negative information is because, you know, maybe they have a long, you know, they're, they're, they're bullish on the stock and, and they'd like to hear what, you know, what else is being said about it. Totally. Uh, and just to be just to be clear, I, I don't think there's a right answer to that question. I was just sort of curious how you thought about it. I mean, it, 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 I, like I said, there's not a right answer or a wrong answer. Um, yeah. People are going to sort of gravitate to what they're going to gravitate towards. But I do think, you know, in an era where media is getting more examination and less trust and, you know, information, again, coming back to this sort of theme of, you know, what is what is the the truth is a, is a given number real or is a given perspective real like what what do we trust um it seems like something that that deserves some attention from from across across the financial research industry not not just from footnote obviously <laughs> um we can only do so much no yeah <laughs> definitely um i mean it's something we think about to be to be sure um so moving out to la has that changed your perspective on on how the industry works, on how um, companies work. Have you noticed that that being away from finance day to day in terms of all the people you talk to, you know, working at home, has that given you a different perspective, or is is it just more of the, more of the same essentially? I mean, you know, it's hard. I get. I, I wouldn't say um, a different perspective. It's certainly, um, you know, it's certainly nice to. Um, have the time advantage. I'll give you that much because Friday nights now start that, you know, the Friday night dump now starts at 1 PM for me. So um, instead of me, you know, when I was back in New York and like, you know, I'd like to pretend that I have a life too. And so, you know, spending, you know, Friday evenings reading SEC filings was not, you know, particularly enjoyable for me and my family. Um, you know, um, as much as I enjoy reading them, it's not, you know, it's certainly not, um, you know, uh, like, you know, a hobby. Or no no like one that. wants I'm to be away from their kid, you know, massaging yeah. Edgar at, at Friday yeah, exactly. at 8 p.m. Like, that's just not. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, would much, much rather hang out with my son. And so now I can, you know, kind of start tackling the filings while he's still in school and, um, you know, then, you know, be there for him. So, yeah, that, that's a big advantage for sure. I, I you know. From my end, I'm I'm waking up, you know, at 5:30 in the morning on the East Coast. So the idea of doing that from the West Coast is grim. But given given your focus on the latter part of the day, that that's definitely a huge leg up. Um, I mean, the other the other interesting thing about being out here in LA is, and I don't mean this to be a total slight to people in LA, but I often I'll try to explain what I do to other people, and you can just see their eyes glaze over. That did not really usually happen in New York. People had a sort of understanding of what an SEC filing was, you know, even if they were not in the business, it was just sort of a general understanding of things. And so it's kind of funny to see, you know, like if I try to explain, you know, what's going on to other people, it's, it's kind of funny. No, I, I actually tell people, you know, along this vein, like I like it when I'm not around people that are in finance all the time. Like I, you know, my best friends are mostly in the financial industry and I love talking to people in the financial industry and it's, you know, not to impugn finance people, but we do as a group kind of tend to think the world revolves around us sometimes. So it's nice to be around people sure. that like don't know or care because really most people shouldn't yeah. know or care, right? Like, you know, every, we shouldn't have the entire country 
Hunter perusing Edgar every night. That's not, or or you know, hanging on every word Cherry Ellen says. Like that, that's that's not a good way to be as a as a country. Yeah. So it's it, it is kind of nice to get get both that not not living in the New York area. Um, you, so when a large wave of these filings comes out, is it just you looking for stuff and trying to read through this all as fast as possible? Do you have like a like a system or software for to help identify? what you should be looking at because you know given how broadly you you cover it's a lot of information or it potentially could be on a big friday dump like you, you could be talking sure. hundreds of companies how do you filter it down and focus on what needs to be focused on to get the sort of interesting nuggets so we have you know there's a couple of different filters there is a small team that i have um and um you know we do have um a number of filters we're looking for you know um words in a filing so an example might be the word subpoena right now a company could say in their filing um you know every time the word subpoena appears in a filing we're going to get an alert on that we use like a system we use a private um service that kind of you know maps out the SEC filings for us i mean we do use edgar of course but you know we also use this other service um, and there's a, actually a couple of other services we use. We, we use IntelliGize, we've used AlphaSense, and we've also used Sentio. And all three of those kind of um, do somewhat different things, but they do a really good job of, you know, getting into the SEC filings and allowing you to find specific things. Because otherwise, if you were to just go into Edgar and do a command F, that's, um, you know, a little bit uh, time consuming to say the least, especially when there's a lot of filings flying. I mean, I do it on a Friday night with the 8Ks, but, you know, if I was to try to do it like, you know, in uh, the beginning of March with 10Ks, you know, I mean, Bank of America last year, I think they filed a 1200 page 10K, you know, just to show you these are not, this is not light reading. This is not, you know, Chicklet or, you know, um, Tom Clancy or, you know, pick your novelist of choice. Um, this is like a heavy slog. Um, and of course, I'm not saying that you want to read all 1200 pages of Bank of America's filing if you own, you know, 100 or even 500 shares. Um, but, you know, it could be, um, you know, helpful to know some of what's going on in there. So you need to employ shortcuts, of course. Um, there's just no way to read it all. I mean, you know, Usually in a typical year, there's something like, you know, almost 700,000 filings that are made to the SEC. So there is just nobody, you know, machine, maybe, you know, when machine reading AI stuff gets a little bit more sophisticated, maybe, um, you know, that will work. I don't know. Um, but right now, um, you know, there's just nothing that can get through that number of filings. Now, some of those filings, of course, are, you know, forms three, four, and five. So they're one page, but other filings are, you know, the Bank of America, you know, JP Morgan Chase, you know, thousand page, you know, um, you know, giant time suck. I mean, I don't even know. I've never actually read an, uh, you know, a 10K cover to cover per se, but I, I have no idea how long it would take me to get through a 1200 page filing. It would probably take quite a long time. It's always really interesting to think about when you're when you're looking at some of these big things. A, a, an example would be the Dodd-Frank bill when it was passed in 2010. I was interning in Washington, D.C., and I had to go through and understand a bunch of the provisions and brief some people on it. And it was it was a limited scope, so I didn't have to go through the whole thing. But you really do wonder, like Dodd-Frank or ACA are good examples in the legislative space. A, a modern, large money center bank, um, 10K is a good example in the financial world. Um, you know, maybe certain court decisions um, or briefs. Like you wonder some of this stuff that gets put out, how many people ever anywhere have read it cover to cover. I would be surprised oh, yeah. if anyone had read Bank of America's 10K cover to cover. That would really surprise yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same time, you know. Well, probably the lawyers, right? I mean, that's you know the lawyers who wrote it. Well, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure each section of it has been read by somebody. But you know, yeah. one person sitting down and reading the whole thing cover to cover, I don't know. I mean, I would still be surprised. Um, you know, like it's just so much language and it's so dense too, especially for financial institutions. So. Um, can you talk a little bit about how a, a, a modern 10K or a modern filing will read compared to something from the mid 2000s? Have banks gotten, as they've gotten more complicated and as sort of people have become more aware of some of the material risks around some of these institutions, have they gotten more complicated in their disclosure um, to, to deal with that? 
Yeah, I think for sure. I mean, like, you know, proxies have gotten quite long, you know, as companies go into all the different compensation, you know, details about metrics and everything like that. You know, so you've seen that. I mean, I think when I first started, a typical proxy was like maybe 40, 45 pages. Now it's not uncommon to see 100 pages, um, you know, sometimes more for a larger company. Um, you know, I love like, you know, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway because their filings are just so plain. I guess this gets back to a good example. Their filings are just, you know, relatively plain, even though it's a very complicated company. Um, but, um, you know, they, I feel like, you know, they tend to kind of just state the facts and state what it is, um, as opposed to trying to go into like, you know, all of this other stuff there. Um, so I'm sorry, I just lost the blank of what the question was, George. Oh, whether banks have gotten more complicated in their disclosure. Yeah. So banks have definitely, I mean, you know, certainly following 2008, you saw a lot of banks going really into detail on their risks and how they were evaluating their risks and, you know, their tier one and their tier two and tier three. And so you were seeing like, you know, a lot of extra disclosure, you know, and, and keep in mind, obviously these filings are, you know, almost exclusively written by attorneys, usually, you know, um, uh, you know, in, in great detail, um, and so attorneys in general tend to be risk averse. That's just sort of their nature. Um, and, uh, you know, when they go into these filings, they're trying to disclose anything that could potentially, you know, possibly go wrong. Um, and so you really need to evaluate. I mean, you know, it's very common, for example, you know, for years now you see companies disclosing, you know, cybersecurity risk. Now, I haven't actually gone back and looked at, you know, Equifax's most recent disclosure on cybersecurity, but I would, my guess would be that it's probably the same boilerplate that a lot of companies have given, um, you know, for, um, you know, cybersecurity um, disclosures. So I don't think that they, you know, it, it, it's just, you know, a lot of the language tends to be similar. And so as you start to read it over and over again, you're like, okay, the cybersecurity disclosure. Um, oh, okay, the risk disclosure on, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, X, Y, Z on, you know, some other type of thing. Um, so you tend to get like, you know, you can, you can certainly get fatigued. In that vein of boilerplate, are there risks that are disclosed widely, you know, maybe not universally, but widely that don't get talked about by the market? Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that they're anything other than boilerplate, uh, CYA stuff from attorneys, but, um, cybersecurity is a really good example. So as you said, I mean, you know, we don't have to pull up, a, an example from Equifax, but, um, they almost certainly said something to that effect in the past. And yet, you know, when the hack comes down, it's, it's this giant surprise, you know, obviously these things are relatively infrequent, so it's not that it shouldn't be a surprise, but are there other sort of common boilerplate language, language you see that people wouldn't necessarily associate with being a risk to a given company? And it does, you don't even need to be, have a specific example. I'm, I'm wondering if there's more like a general, um, thing that's cropped up more, more frequently that applies across a number of companies that people wouldn't necessarily consider as a risk to a holding. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly, you know, you see cybersecurity, you've started to see some disclosures about climate change. You know, I think that, you know, the next round of filings, given the recent spate of storms and, you know, whether it's like, you know, um, uh, you know, the certainly the three most recent hurricanes, I think you're probably going to see some disclosures about weather and events, you know, during, um, you know, so, you know, when I look at the risk factors, you have to kind of discount it and say, what's a real risk and what's just sort of the CYA boilerplate risk. Um, and that's a tough thing to, you know, kind of ascertain. I mean, you really need to know the company. And I will also say, you know, I learned this the hard way uh, last week, for example, there's a company that I own shares in, it's called Versardis. And um, I don't know if you saw this, but on Friday, the stock dropped 80%, um, you know, and I own shares of it. It sucks. It's painful. But there was nothing in their filings that warned me that the stock was going to drop 80%. Right. It's not a, it's not a silver so, bullet to read all the footnotes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, you know, I got burned on that. It's um, It sucks for me. It sucks for anyone else who owned the stock. Um, but um, there was nothing in the filings there that I really saw. I mean, I've gone back and I've done sort of a, you know, um, you know, a postmortem on this because that's what I do when I, you know, make a mistake. I want to see is there something that I can learn that would have made me smarter 
and there's nothing there that I found. So, you know, it is not a be all end all. Oh, if only you read the filings, you will be a successful investor. It should be one part of your, um, you know, investing experience. When it comes to your personal investing, what are some of the other major toolboxes you you draw from personally? I don't I don't want you to speak on behalf of anyone else, but um, you know, I, I do see a lot of focus on on understanding businesses and reading disclosure and that sort of thing. Uh, what are some other big things that you tend to think about? You know, I think I, I feel like you know I you know because I know the filings so well, I feel like I use the filings as my baseline for. Um, being an investor. Um, and so I certainly, that's my area of focus. You know, if I see like a new um, disclosure in a filing, or if I see something that piques my interest, I'll certainly, um, you know, use that as sort of a jumping off point to, you know, further research a company. Um, but, um, you know, it's not, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, I don't do a lot of in, you know, individual stocks. Um, I kind of have some money that I, you know, consider, you know, it's sort of like my play money that, um, you know, I'm not using for my kid's education or to pay my mortgage or, you know, the other sort of stuff that you need to do with, with life. So I kind of test out my theories in that, you know, small little portfolio. It's a very healthy approach. And, and Josh Brown, who is a former um, guest on this podcast, had this same sort of observation where we kind of tend to get obsessed with like index everything, you know, you can't beat the market or pick the best fund or whatever, whatever, whatever. But, you know, having that, you know, little pool of money that you don't, it's not the end of the world if it if you don't get good returns on it, but it keeps you engaged in the market and it keeps you, you know, having a good time with what you're doing. And that's so important, like, you know, to be if you have the ability to do that, um, it can be so beneficial, even if you underperform whatever random benchmark you pull out, you know? Yeah. I mean, as long as you're not like, you know, I mean, it, I would be a lot more upset, for example, you know, with that Versardis example, I'd be a lot more upset if I said, oh, that was my kid's college education fund and I just lost 80% of, of it. No, very <laughs> different thing. Very different thing. You know, but like, you know, it was like, you know, I'm certainly upset about it and I'm frustrated that like there was something that I didn't see um, coming. But, you know, on the other hand, it's like it's taught me you know, it's an important lesson. Like, you know, maybe I relied on that. There was something I saw in the filings that prompted me to buy the stock. And, you know, maybe I relied on the filings a little too much. So lesson learned. Our last segment we do every time is trading rich, trading cheap. So uh, we're not going to talk about stocks or buying or selling anything, um, but just sort of um, how, how you view stuff um, in the world. So earlier you had mentioned that you don't think AI or machine learning or however you want to describe it is um, anywhere close to being able to do what you do and and understand language as well as human beings do. Um, do you think that um, development, the sort of um, press of computers into higher cognitive tasks, do you think that concept is trading rich or trading cheap? Oh, uh, hard question. I don't know. Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Is that like a cop-out answer? As long as you explain it, it's not a cop-out. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, you, you know, AI is certainly making improvements. And I think that it can, you know, I mean, I just think about, you know, I've been reading filings for, you know, probably the last 15 years or so. And um, certainly I'm using tools a lot more than I used to, but I think that, you know, part of the problem is, is that you only know what you're looking for. And so I haven't seen a good tool yet that shows me how to look exact, how to find exactly what I'm looking for each and every time. Um, and so, um, you know, whether that's a negative signal or a positive signal. And so I think that, you know, there's there's a lot of improvement that could be made here. Okay. Uh, you work from home. Um, do you think that working from home is trading rich or trading cheap? Oh, I'm a big advocate of working from home. I've worked from home for a long time. I'm often interested in like how, you know, for a while I thought when I first moved out to L.A., I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm new to the area. Um, maybe I'll find a co-working space. And I checked out. It wasn't WeWork, but it was another co-working space, um, you know, similar to that. And I just thought, like, God, why am I going to pay $500 to have, like, a desk and be surrounded by, like, other people who are chattering around all day when I've got, like, you know, this lovely room in my house? <laughs> yep, I feel the exact same way. And plus, 
you know, I mean, I was just kind of like, huh, I'm like, and I, and I'm, I, you know, I, I've looked at co-working spaces and I think it could work for certain people, but you know, to have a private office in this co-working space, which was a very small office, you know, certainly smaller than, you know, the room that I'm working out of now was going to be like $1,500 a month plus $150 a month to park. And I'm just thinking like, huh, why would I do that? Like, I mean, do I want to just piss money away? I mean, you know, I don't know, maybe some people, I think, but it also doesn't work well for other people. I mean, look, I have a dog. We've talked about dogs. Sometimes my dog just sits there and barks and it could be when I'm on an important phone call and then it's embarrassing and you know, you have to say, oh, my dog's barking. Now, thankfully, he didn't bark during this call. So we we're <laughs> dog people here at Bespoke. We uh, we have a mascot uh, at the office, and I have two dogs in my home office. So, no barking would not have been a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're talking to a CEO of a company, or you know, if I'm talking to a hedge fund and talking to them about you know why they should buy my product and how you know um, it's going to make them smarter and everything, and the dog starts barking, it kind of sounds a little like rinky dink. So I can get that. But yeah, I think I'm a big fan of working from home. I love it. Been doing it really for, you know, 20 years now and uh, just can't imagine. I feel like offices are where you go, like where creativity goes to die. <laughs> That's a good quote. Uh, last one. Uh, as a small business person, do you think small businesses are trading rich or trading cheap? There's a lot of research that's gone into uh, showing that uh, business creation, birth, death, and sort of dynamism in the American economy is not what it was historically. Um, you see a lot of establishment level um, dynamism, but not so much at the firm level. Um, much fewer people starting businesses, um, you know, more concentration. So do you think that small business is is you know, on the downtrend and that will continue? Or do you think that um, things like easier work from home and a more knowledge-based economy are, are supportive for small business? Uh, I think the latter. I mean, you know, maybe I live in a little bit of a bubble, but, you know, I was just, just before this call, I was at my son's school and either there's a lot of parents who are not working, but I think that that's not the case. There's a lot of parents who sort of have you know, flexible jobs. I mean, especially as you have, you know, responsibilities of kids and, um, you know, uh, it, it helps to be flexible. I mean, you know, and being in an office and having to be, I mean, I, I, I think about it, like, I just don't know. My husband has a traditional office job or maybe not so traditional. He works at DreamWorks. He's an animator. And so it's not, you know, it's not like he's making widgets all day. Um, but, um, you know, he has to be in an office and, you know, there's no real opportunity to work from home there. And, um, you know, as a result, if like, you know, Friday, for example, is a day there's no school for whatever reason, there's no school. Well, what do you do when you have to do that sort of thing? You know, if you're, when you have kids, you need to have, I think someone needs to have some kind of flexibility. Otherwise you're going to be constantly stressed out. You know, I mean, Thanksgiving time, for example, you know, my son has 10 days off for Thanksgiving. I don't know why Thanksgiving needs to be a 10 day off holiday, but it does. And if I had a traditional office job, I would need to find, you know, coverage for that. And then three weeks later, when he has three weeks off for winter break, I would need to find coverage for that. So I think that, you know, for a lot of people, um, you know, this, this balance is you know, having someone who has, you know, increased flexibility is incredibly important. And I'd like to see someone talk about that because I look around at some of the other parents in the class who don't have that flexibility and I wonder what they're going to do. You know, I mean, who, for people who, you know, don't have that kind of flexibility, maybe they're lower income, they work at the Walmart or, you know, what have you, Starbucks, you know, and the Friday is no, not a school day. What are you going to do? Do you take it off? You, maybe you need that money. I don't know. That's getting into a little bit of socialism here, right? We can we can scrap that if you want. Oh no! I, I <laughs> hey, listen. I think uh, talking about how we want society to be and and uh, you know the trade offs we make people uh, choose between is important, and, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. We're we're fans of that. So um, with that, I think though, I'm incredibly fortunate to be like flexible to have the flexibility that I do. Now I will I do. will agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I I mean I. Again, the flexibility of being able to work from home, of being able to have, you know, my two four-legged friends around, being able to move down and, you know, be with my significant other, all that stuff is 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 uh, something that most people, I feel like, don't get the opportunity to get. So 
also grateful for that. So with that, on that on that positive, thankful note, I think we can wrap things up. Uh, Michelle Leader, it was awesome having you on. Really interesting to hear your perspective on uh, filings, on reading the fine print, and um, your website is footnoted.com where you can go and check out what Michelle's been working on and also at footnoted on Twitter. Thanks again for coming on, Michelle. We really appreciate it. Thanks, George. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke Cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, data sets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.